This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the December episode of TSC Now. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. This month, we're bringing you a special early episode all about infantile spasms. Infantile Spasms Awareness Week, held December 1st through 7th, wrapped up yesterday, but we wanted to extend our efforts one more day to talk about why infantile spasms are such a serious medical emergency and why this effort to raise awareness with both parents and caregivers and also healthcare professionals is so important. Infantile spasms are a rare but very serious type of seizure. The TS Alliance is part of the Infantile Spasms Action Network, a coalition of over 30 organizations dedicated to raising awareness of IS, not just during IS Awareness Week, but year round. To first provide some context on what infantile spasms are, what they look like, and why they are so serious, I talked to another ISAN member, Dr. Kelly Knupp, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Neurology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Here's my conversation with Dr. Nup. All right, I'm now joined by Dr. Kelly Nup, who is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Neurology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and a member of the Infantile Spasms Action Network. Kelly, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thanks for coordinating this and inviting me. So let's start off with the basics. What are infantile spasms? Infantile spasms are an age-related seizure, meaning we mostly see it in the first two years of life. And it's a very unique seizure type. What everybody thinks of as a seizure is falling to the ground and shaking all over. And that's not what infantile spasms look like. It's actually a cluster of several small seizures and they most often present clinically with extension of the arms and legs and maybe loss of tone and kind of crunching. And that actually usually lasts about a second, but it will happen in a cluster every 10 seconds or so over a period of several minutes. Many times babies will cry with this, which is usually what concerns parents is that they have this funny movement and they're crying with it. And that's usually when parents will seek attention. I don't think that many parents realize what they're seeing as a seizure. They just know that there's something wrong with their baby because, you know, particularly if you don't know much about seizures, what we all think of seizures is the falling to the ground and shaking all over, which is not what this looks like. So you kind of described what they do look like. What are some other conditions that they might be confused for? Yeah, so it can be confused for colic. These happen often when babies are waking up or when they're going to sleep. And so that's also the time when you're usually feeding the baby, right? When the baby wakes up or right as the baby's going to sleep. And so many times people will think that it's colic or that it's stomach cramps or constipation. So there are a number of things that can get misdiagnosed or if people just aren't, you know, aren't realizing that there's something bigger going on, we'll just attribute it to one of these things. If a parent is concerned about what they're seeing and they go to a pediatrician or a general practitioner and their concerns are dismissed, what should they do next? Yeah, I think if the parents are concerned about it, they should take a video of the spells. Very few people have a seizure in the office. And, you know, it's Murphy's Law. When you go in to complain about something, it doesn't happen when you're in the office. And so the pediatrician or the emergency room physician 
may not recognize what it is that the family's trying to describe. The analogy I will often use with my patients is we could all be standing around looking at a picture and we're all looking at the exact same picture, but if we go to describe it, we're all going to describe it a little bit differently. So the video is super helpful with that. You know, I think if the pediatrician isn't concerned after seeing the video, then I would recommend going to the emergency room and seeking urgent care. If the family already has an established relationship with a neurologist, the other thing they could do is contact their neurologist and send the video to them so that they can review it. And once they're in touch with their neurologist, what sorts of tests would the neurologist do to confirm that infantile spasms diagnosis? Yeah, the testing that's usually done fairly immediately is an EEG. So an electroencephalogram, which is looking at the brain waves. And oftentimes, even without a seizure, we can make a diagnosis of infantile spasms because we see a very characteristic pattern on the EEG called hypsarrhythmia. And so that tells us that something isn't going right and that we need to look more carefully for infantile spasms. Sometimes it's not as straightforward as we want it to be. So not everybody, you know, checks the boxes the way that they're supposed to. And so sometimes we actually do have to record a longer EEG to actually record the spells that somebody is having. And that will help us, you know, almost always figure out definitively whether somebody is having infantile spasms or not. For us as neurologists, we view this as an urgency. We know that response rate is better the sooner we treat it and that long-term outcomes are better the sooner we treat infantile spasms. So for the vast majority of neurologists, if we are concerned that somebody has infantile spasms, we are often recommending an evaluation starting that same day. And that may vary from center to center. So that may mean getting an EEG that same day or being admitted that same day or going to the emergency room that same day. But we generally treat this as an urgency. Yeah, you talk about that urgency. And I know that in the Infantile Spasms Action Network, where we talk about IS as a medical emergency, why are these spasms so serious? Well, you know, as the spasms are occurring and with this chaotic pattern on the EEG, we often see plateauing of development. So it is not uncommon that when we go back and talk to families about what the baby's been doing developmentally, that we actually see some plateau in the developmental progress they were making one or two weeks before they even see the onset of the clinical spasms. And we know that treatment outcomes are better the sooner we treat. So ideally, we would like to treat within seven days of onset. So, you know, there's always a little bit of lag time in that for many of our families, because maybe they, the first day that they happened, they only happened one cluster. And then the next day, there's two or three clusters and the family has to sort of register, oh, there's something not right here. I need to seek help. And then they have to go through those steps of, am I convinced enough to call somebody to seek help? And, you know, did that person actually listen to them and get concerned as well and get them in for help right away? So there's lots of things along the way that can contribute to that lag of getting a diagnosis. And that's why we like to act as quickly as we can so that we can initiate treatment as rapidly as possible. And what impact does that early treatment have on the long-term health and cognitive function of the baby if affected? So, you know, outcomes depend on lots of things. So the initiation of treatment is just one of them. So the sooner we initiate treatment, the better our outcomes are. We also know that in initiating the right treatment is important. So we have kind of three mainstays of medication that we use right now. ACTH, which is a, a hormone that gets injected with a shot, oral corticosteroids, 
foods and a medicine called Vigabatran. And so those are standard medications and children who receive standard medications as their first medicine do the best. Sometimes providers will, for whatever reason, choose alternative medications and those children don't do as well. So we think it's really important to start a standard medication. It's also important to figure out why the baby is having infantile spasms. There are lots and lots of reasons why infantile spasms can happen. And sometimes looking at that list, it really is looking at a list of, you know, anything that can happen to a baby. So, you know, what is causing the spasms may also impact outcome as well. So all of those things can impact how a baby does in the long run. But our biggest fear is that there is a risk of ongoing seizures. So about 50% of babies who have infantile spasms will develop other seizure types as time goes on. And then we also, our most important thing that we're concerned about is cognitive development. So the sooner we act with an appropriate medication, the better that cognitive development is. So how has COVID-19 complicated getting this quick response and how should parents weigh the importance of getting that diagnosis versus the apprehension they may feel about going to a clinic or to the hospital right now? Yeah. So I think there are a number of things related to COVID that have impacted this. And and I think it does vary from location to location, depending on how prevalent COVID is and, you know, the state of the healthcare system in that particular area. I think that, you know, parents are, appropriately and understandably concerned about being exposed to COVID when they go into emergency rooms. And, you know, particularly if your local emergency room is one that is seeing both pediatrics and adults in the same location, I think that fear is even greater. I have the benefit of working in a freestanding children's hospital. So our emergency room is only children. So that makes it a little bit safer. And the triaging happens actually outside the building into sick kids, you know, kids with fever and kids without fever so that we can separate even a little bit more for that concern about COVID. I think that there have been times through this pandemic when pediatricians' offices have not been reliably open. And I think we've even had time periods when child neurologists' offices have only been seeing certain urgent patients. And so that can present challenges for families coming in. You know, and I think as a parent, when you're seeing these, you know, I think if your child were bleeding in front of you, you would do what you needed to do to go to the emergency room. But when you see these funny spells and it's not clearly seizure to you, it's hard for a parent to even know this is something I need to be concerned about enough to go to the scary emergency room. I think that everybody has been doing the best they can to make sure they're identifying these patients as phone calls are coming in, you know, requesting families to send in videos. The vast majority of our hospitals have been able to continue to admit patients into their pediatric floors so that they can do an EEG and make this diagnosis. But we have seen that some, some hospitals because they're so full of particularly adult patients with COVID that they've actually had to do some of this evaluation as an outpatient, which actually can be done. It requires a little bit more attention. And then there's still maybe some cases where there's still some question. So I think that people are trying to do the best that they can to make this diagnosis. And everybody just has to be very attentive to this. And it's really hard to say that a parent has to be attentive to this because this is often their first step into having a neurologic diagnosis. So it really is important for our ED providers, our pediatric neurologists and our pediatricians and our family practice doctors to be aware and attentive to this history to make sure that they're not ignoring it. 
And part of raising that awareness is through Infantile Spasms Awareness Week, which we're currently in the middle of. Why is it so important to raise awareness, not just with families, but with these medical professionals who may be on the front lines of that diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, this diagnosis is a rare diagnosis. So as a pediatric neurologist, this is something that we do see. Unfortunately, we'd love to not see it, but most of us in busy centers see one or two cases a month. But for a child neurologist in an area that doesn't have as much density as a pediatric children's hospital, this may be something they only see a handful of times a year. There are some areas of the country where there aren't pediatric neurologists available. And so neurologic care may actually be coming through an adult neurologist who may only see this once every couple of years. In the emergency room, our ED physicians have to be prepared to see everything. And so they really have to be able to sort out the difference between a baby with constipation or colic and a baby who may be having infantile spasms and it's not something that they see every day, but something that they have to keep tucked in the back of their head. And it's the same for our pediatricians and our family practice doctors. You know, these are cases that they may only see once every couple of years, but they don't want to miss it. And so, you know, it's one of those diagnoses that you can't afford to miss. And so it's really important that we continue to remind them to think about this so it remains fresh in the back of their minds as they're seeing patients. For the pediatrician, what are those telltale signs that would really differ differentiate this as infantile spasms? Is it the clustering or would they not be able to know until an EEG was done? It's often the clustering. We would actually prefer that more EEGs are done than kids with infantile spasms. So we actually would prefer that pediatricians over-refer rather than under-refer. So if they're even remotely suspicious about this, we would rather just get the EEG done and be able to answer the question than to risk having a baby sitting out there who's having infantile spasms that has gone undiagnosed. Diagnosed. I think something that is really, really helpful is for families to try and videotape the spells. And I mentioned that earlier, and I'll mention it again, because again, they very rarely happen in front of the provider. And so that's a really good way for everybody to see what the parents are seeing and to, to know what it is that they're concerned about. Finally, just as a summary, I know this is something that you've touched on a couple of times, but I think it's important just as a final reminder, if a parent suspects their baby is having spasms, what should they do? They should call for help that same day. So they need to call their pediatrician. If their pediatrician isn't paying attention, if they have a neurologist, they need to call their neurologist. If their neurologist isn't paying attention, then they need to go to the emergency room and seek care right away. Thank you so much for talking to me today. And thank you for helping to raise awareness of infantile spasms. This is such an important effort. And we're glad to have you as a partner in the Infantile Spasms Action Network. Oh, I'm so glad to get this word out. I think this is just one of those things that everybody needs to be aware of so that it doesn't get missed. My thanks again to Dr. Nutt for providing great information on IS and crucial advice for parents who may suspect their baby is having spasms. To learn more about infantile spasms and ISAN, visit infantilespasms.org. Next, I spoke to Ashley Callahan of St. Augustine, Florida. In June, when her daughter Kaylee was four months old, Ashley noticed Kaylee making strange, repetitive eye movements, which prompted a trip to the emergency room despite the COVID-19 pandemic and eventually a diagnosis of infantile spasms. Here's my conversation with Ashley. 
We're now joined by Ashley Callahan, whose daughter Kaylee was diagnosed with infantile spasms earlier this year. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you. To start, why don't you just tell me a little bit about your family? Well, I live in sunny St. Augustine, Florida with my husband, James, and my two daughters, Kaylee, who we're talking about today. She is now nine months old. And my older daughter, Madeline, she is four. We moved here about a year ago. I was born and raised in Indiana. My husband was raised most of his life in Indiana. We trekked down the eastern seaboard to Florida and it's been great. We love it here. So when did you first notice that something wasn't quite right with your daughter Kaylee? The morning of July 18th is when this sort of all began. I really hadn't noticed anything with Kaylee prior to that morning. She woke up at her usual time and I was feeding her and taking care of her. Everyone else was still asleep. And she started doing strange movements. I didn't really know what I was seeing at first. I was like, okay, that's that's odd. And it just kept going. Like she would have more of them. And it lasted like 15 minutes. And kind of in the middle of it, I was like, why is she still doing it? It was the eyes really for her that kind of clued me in because her eyes would go up and over to the right every time she would have one of her spasms. And the spasms kind of looked like, you know, baby startle or just kind of move funny, you know, in normal behavior. And it kind of looked like that, but it was her eyes doing this over and over again that I was like, I started getting this funny feeling that something isn't quite right. Prior to noticing these eye movements, was there any issues Prior to that, were there any issues during your pregnancy that might have led you to believe that anything was wrong? No, there was nothing. It was a very normal pregnancy. Nothing came up on her ultrasound scans. I had probably four scans with her, <laughs> which it was a lot considering with Madeline, I had fewer. She was born very healthy. She had a great, you know, APGAR score, was released from the hospital, had been to all of her pediatrician appointments. Nobody noticed anything odd. She had failed a routine hearing test, but we had been assured, you know, like lots of kids do that. We'll just take another one and we'll work that out as she gets older. But really no health concerns at all up until that morning when she was about four and a half months old, she was meeting her developmental milestones perfectly. After you noticed this repetitive eye movement, what did you do next? Well, like I said, sort of this lasted for about 15 minutes, which was a long time, kind of in the middle of it. When I was starting to get that funny feeling that something was off, I you know, opened my phone to Google and was like, what, what does this look like to me? And I typed in infant spasm. I had no idea about infantile spasms or anything. It just, it kind of looked like a spasm. So I put that in and went to the first website and it was very scary. <laughs> it was all about infantile spasm. Um, it had videos and it had a graphic and it said, take a video. And so that's what I did next was take a video of it. And then, you know, I showed it to my husband a little later on. You know, after you've taken that video, at what point did you make the decision that this is something that needs attention and decided to go to the hospital? Well, even after going to the website and taking the video, you know, I was like, I, I still don't know. I'm going to ask my husband. So he, he woke up and I said, hey, Kaylee was doing something funny. Will you look at this video? And, and so he looked at it and he was like, I don't know. You know, like it's so subtle, like blink and you miss it kind of movement right at the time. And so he's like, I don't 
don't know. And so we were kind of moving on with our day and Kaylee started having another cluster of spasms and he saw it firsthand. And we were both just watching her do this. And we just both looked up and looked at each other. And we knew that she was going to the emergency room in that moment because this kept happening. And it was just very, a very odd thing. These clusters started happening right in the middle of the pandemic. Was there any trepidation on your part about taking the baby to the emergency room? Absolutely. Absolutely. When the pandemic first hit, that was like in March. So a couple months prior to when this was happening in July, a lot of her standard appointments, you know, with her pediatrician and that hearing test that I was talking about got canceled and then were rescheduled weeks later. And we still didn't go, you know, because we were like, I don't want to go to a hospital with this baby who hasn't had all her vaccinations. And it's very scary. And so we're guilty. You know, we, we were also scared. And so I think, you know, both of us that morning didn't want to take her. I think we were just hoping that it could be something that we could ask our pediatrician about on Monday, you know, because it was a Saturday. But I think when she had that second set of spasms and we both saw it together, that just overruled all that fear. I think it being a Saturday too helped because it's like we have to do something. This isn't something that we feel comfortable waiting for. And so for us, that actually helped us because we were like, our pediatrician isn't open. We're going to go straight to an ER. So you take her to the ER and what happens there? And when did you finally get that diagnosis of infantile spasms? Well, only one of us could go because of the pandemic. And so my husband took her. So, you know, we loaded up the car seat carrier and I handed it to him and he he went to Wolfson's in Jacksonville, which is about 45 minutes away. And so he took her into the ER and they kind of looked at him like he was nuts because she outwardly looks very healthy. She wasn't having spasms when he first got there. And so they were like, why did you bring this baby here? <laughs> and so then he showed the video and they immediately got concerned. And so he said there was just a bunch of nurses and doctors that sort of swarmed in at that time. And so it was a long period of time of people, you know, doing some initial looking at her. Then she was admitted and they started giving her, you know, an IV with some medicine. And then the neurologist came in. And that's when the neurologist out of all of these doctors was probably the only one who was clued into, hey, this might be something serious. It could be down this road of infantile spasms. Let's do an EEG. And so after she had been admitted, they hooked her up to do an overnight EEG. And so the next morning when they looked at that you know, EEG result, that's when we got the diagnosis because they could see hypsarrhythmia. And then, you know, of course they wanted to keep her and do more blood work and do an MRI. And so that's why we were there all weekend. You sort of instinctively, before even taking her to the ER, searched infant spasms and began to collect information. But I'm sure, you know, after you get this diagnosis, you have so many more questions. What questions were going through your head and where did you go looking for answers? It was very overwhelming, honestly. Mm -hmm. Because I had no idea of what infantile spasm was. It was call it luck, fate. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that those words came to me when I typed them into Google, but it did. And it, that just so happened to be what was going on. As far as gathering information, I mean, obviously, we leaned on our doctors at first because I just... 
I didn't even know what this was. So, you know, they gave us some very broad <laughs> information about it. We were, you know, when we were released from the hospital, they gave us some medicine. They gave us prednisone to take home and give her and some information about that and what kind of was for in her treatment, you know, for this condition. Honestly, after that, you know, Google was my friend and enemy. <laughs> you know, Googling this condition was informative and horrifying because the information, the outlook for these kids is pretty bleak. So really, it wasn't until really weeks later that I started connecting with some people, you know, on social media and started hearing from other parents that have this diagnosis and have, you know, been down this road and getting better information, I feel like, about what this is, what your treatment options are like, what you should be doing. How is Kaylee doing now? She's doing much better. It's been a long several months so far. She didn't respond to everything that we've tried and we've tried a lot. But, you know, we've kept going and on her current medicines, she is fear free for now. I hate to even say the words, you know, it's sure. It's scary, but she's doing well. She's also in therapy, you know, physical therapy and, and feeding therapy and doing well and progressing in those areas. What did it mean to you to find that community online of parents who have been where you have been and have gone through what you've gone through? It was a game changer, really, because like I said, I didn't know very much about infantile spasm or, you know, we did find what we feel like is a cause for her infantile spasm, which is in the MRI showed some brain malformations. And so we got additional diagnoses besides just infantile spasms. So there's even more to learn about that I didn't know about before. And so at first, like I said, we kind of leaned on her doctors, even her doctors, we, you know, we're seeing pediatric neurologists, epilepsy specialists, we're trying, you know, everything with them and they only have so much information to give. Once I started connecting with some parents online, there was just a wealth of information, you know, people who have this diagnosis exactly. Whereas, you know, some of her neurologists are like, I, we have some kids who've had, you know, similar things, people who have tried, you know, the same treatments, people who have, you know, shared your same struggles. And that community, you know, is very giving of information. What is your hope for Kaylee's future? Obviously, like you said, for now, her seizures are under control. But what would you like to see in terms of breakthroughs or some sort of more permanent cure for her? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we want to reach for the stars for her. Unfortunately, you know, her doctors aren't really able to give us, you know, like what her life will be like. They can't tell us right now because of both the infantile spasms and the brain malformations that she has. They're just, she will miss milestones. She's going to need therapy. We're going to do our best. We can't tell you if she will walk or talk, but go for it, you know? So, I mean, I, I want it all for her, obviously, mm -hmm. but we really are having to let her lead us. So it's really inch stones instead of milestones. She started sitting on her own independently. And this was a big deal. You know, at nine months, we were like, wow, she can do this. It's amazing. So obviously now I'm like, oh, it'd be so great if she would crawl, you know, but like, that's the next goal. You know, I don't know if we'll we'll reach it, but we're, we're going to try. So that's the difficulty. I would love to have, you know, medicine that, you know, doctors could say this is going to cure 
her infantile spasm, you know, because infantile spasm has a high risk of relapse. So that's always, this, you know, something that we're worried about. We watch her very closely to see, was that a spasm every day? And I know a lot of other parents are in a similar boat. So, you know, sort of with IS week, one of the big things, you know, obviously is raising awareness. So parents know what to look for and know about this, but also so that other people and researchers know about this and can help us, you know, get better treatments for our kids so that they can get better and, you know, work on these milestones and have a better outlook like we want for Kaylee. Infantile Spasms Awareness Week is so important, not just in raising awareness for parents so that they know those signs to look for, but also in rallying people around this to help create better outcomes for kids affected. And so hopefully that is something that will come from sharing stories like yours. My final question for you is you kind of responded based on your parental instinct and something that you saw that raised that red flag. What advice would you give other parents who may have a feeling that something isn't quite right? Like I said, call it luck or fate. I mean, it wasn't through like some special knowledge that I had, you know, about this. It just the pieces sort of fell into place, which is why I kind of wanted to be vocal about this because I think you're right. There are a lot of parents who are like, that seems odd and I don't really know what to do about it. A lot of people ask, you know, their pediatrician and there are doctors who have never seen a child with IS in their entire career or only a couple and don't really know. And IS can be missed very easily. So I think what I have learned with Kaylee in all this time is that you know, you really have to trust that instinct that you have and you have to ask questions and sometimes ask them repeatedly. I feel like I repeat myself a lot. And sometimes it isn't until like the fourth time that I've asked the same question that someone's like, oh yeah, that's something that we should think about, you know, like, so don't feel wrong asking a question again, or don't feel wrong, you know, like sometimes you feel either scared because of the pandemic or like you're overreacting. Don't let that, you know, stop you from, you know, pursuing treatment for your child. Because with us, I mean, we were kind of hoping it was something explainable and it, it turned out to be a really big deal, you know, a ton of cascading sort of diagnoses that, you know, we've now been able to, you know, work on if we hadn't gone, we would be in big trouble. So definitely listen to that inner voice. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I think too that your thought to take a video of it and document what was happening was so important too, so that when you went to the hospital, you had something to show them to get you in the door and make sure that they took it seriously. So definitely to any parents who are listening, trust that inner voice, definitely seek out help and ask all of your questions and take that video so that you can show doctors exactly what you're talking about. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for helping us to raise awareness of of infantile spasms. It is a very serious condition and having parents like you share your story just helps us elevate it and make it more important. So, and thank you for just spending time talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
My thanks again to Ashley for sharing her story. Several families have been sharing their stories to help raise awareness of IS during IS Awareness Week. I'll post a few articles about the Callahan family and other families in the show notes. There has also been a coordinated effort from the TS Alliance and other ISAN members to raise awareness, so I'll be sure to post links to some of the coverage in the show notes as well. The Infantile Spasms Action Network has also created a helpful mnemonic to help parents remember what to do if they suspect their child is having infantile spasms. The mnemonic is STOP, and it stands for S, see the signs, including, but not limited to, jerking of the midsection, dropping of the head, raising of the arms, or wide-eyed blinks. There are videos of what these spasms look like at infantilespasms.org. T, take a video and show it to the emergency room doctor, pediatrician, or neurologist. O, obtain a diagnosis. As Ashley mentioned, don't be afraid to continue to ask questions until you get the answers you're looking for. Finally, P, prioritize treatment. Stopping the spasms is crucial to ensuring the best long-term outcomes for the baby. Dr. Nupp shared the first line therapies that should be used, but if they don't work, keep working with your doctor to find something that does. For more information, again, please be sure to visit infantilespasms.org. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening to TSC Now in 2020, and thank you for continuing to support the show. I really appreciate it, and I hope that you and yours have a safe, and happy holiday season. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash TSC Now. Thanks for listening.